0: You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. When you think back on your life, who was the weirdest neighbor you ever had? I think it would be fun to like just hang out over a coffee or a beer and talk about weird neighbor stories. That would be fun. Um, but when we lived in Virginia, in Richmond, our neighbor was a drug dealer. Um, weed. And I could never really prove it, but 10 times a day, a college student would pull up to, in front of his house, and he'd walk out, he'd lean in the, in the car, give the person a high five, and walk back out with a lot of cash. Um, now, as far as drugs and, and drug dealers go, weed is the one you want, the, the, the chillest customers, right? It's, it's pretty much the easiest transactions, and it was fine. Uh, but he also was just a great neighbor. He was always looking out for the neighborhood. We always felt safe. We always felt protected. We loved his family. Uh, He loved our family. Kids played together. It was just a great neighbor situation apart from or maybe because of the other stuff. Now, about a year after we moved out of that neighborhood, my neighbor, my friend, uh, made the front page of the newspaper. Not for good things. And uh, he had shot somebody. In fact, he had shot somebody 100 yards from our house. Uh, someone had tried to rob him, and he he shot him. And, uh, you know, people are complicated. A drug dealer, attempted murderer, great neighbor. Uh, we love this guy. This month, we're going to be talking about a series called A Thankful Neighbor, and I want to kind of give us some working definitions uh, of, of neighbors. In the Old Testament, we have one word and one idea for neighbor. In the New Testament, it goes slightly different. In the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word, Rea, Rhea, rea, something like that. It means companion, and the emphasis is on likeness. Someone that is like you, a part of your tribe, a part of your, uh, in this sense, the Jewish tribe. So uh, Jews loving other Jewish people. So in the Old Testament, there, the emphasis of neighbor was like people that look like you, act like you, think like you, believe like you, likeness. Now, as we get to the New Testament, uh, the Greek word, plesios, P-L-E-S-I-O-S, Uh, The the word for neighbor there emphasizes proximity, someone that you are near to. Now, this makes sense if you think about the story arc of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people are kind of isolated and trying to make their way and carve their own path. But by the time we get to the New Testament, uh, empires are around, and there's a, a lot of traffic, a lot of different types of people around. And so neighbor became not just someone that was like you, but just someone that lived near you. So Old Testament, emphasis on likeness. Love people that are like you. In the New Testament, emphasis on nearness. Love the people around you, no matter what they look like. And we see this idea kind of emphasized or reinforced in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? It's a famous story in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus talks to a lawyer. They're going back and forth about what's the greatest law, what's the greatest commandment, and they kind of land on loving God with all your heart, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, the Jewish lawyer asks Jesus, okay, well, who is my neighbor? And he's asking from a Jewish perspective, is it kind of like the old ways where the neighbor were people that just looked like me, thought like me, believed like me? Am I just obligated under the law of God to love the people that that are like me? And of course, Jesus flips it by telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Actually, let's tell a story about a Jewish person who's robbed and injured and a non-Jewish person comes in and saves the day, shows compassion. He tells a story. Then he looks to the lawyer and says, all right, you tell me who was the neighbor in this story? And the lawyer says, it's the one who showed mercy on the other person. So Jesus flips the definition or expands the definition of neighbor. You're not just obligated or compelled by the love of God to love people that look like you, think like you, believe like you. You are obligated and compelled by the love of God to love people who need to be loved. To show compassion on those who are broken and those who are hurting. It doesn't matter what their race is, what their gender is, what their sexual orientation is, what their religious preferences, political preferences, it doesn't really matter. If they are in proximity to you and you see that they have a need and you have the ability to meet that need, you are compelled by the love of God to meet that need. It's not about likeness, it's about nearness and proximity. Now, the Old Testament does have. Similar sentiment as well. I don't want to bash the Old Testament or just that, that way. Thinking when we get to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, that we see this sentiment pretty strongly. Now, when I say Jeremiah 29, if you were a good like, Bible Christian growing up, you go 29 11. Jeremiah 29 11, my favorite verse ever. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. This is like our favorite verse as Americans. God's got great plans for me, He wants to prosper me and not harm me. It's our favorite. We put it on coffee mugs, t-shirts. I saw it all over the place, like in graduation ceremonies. You get the plaque with your picture on it, like underneath the verse. God has great plans for your future. And that's probably true enough. But when we look at Jeremiah 29 as a, as a whole, or Jeremiah overall as a whole, it's a completely different story. It's a completely different context, and the context complicates things. Okay, So in the book of Jeremiah, the Israelites are under the oppression of the Babylonian Empire. And as far as empires go, they were one of the worst. Uh, The Persians, the Greeks, even the Romans were okay compared to the Babylonians. They were not great for the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, like, hey, we were told we were special and we have this, this land. And this situation is completely different and we're kind of angry about it. So, God, what's going on? When can we leave this empire and this oppression and when can we go back home? And God says, 70 years. 70 years you can go home. And another way of saying that is none of you that can hear my voice right now are going to make it out alive. You're all going to die before Israel goes home, before the promises fulfilled that you'll reestablish your thing. So Israel's mad. God, when can we go home? And God says, 70 years. None of you are going to make it. Cool, cool, okay. Great, great, great. Um, What about those plans to prosper us in the future for us? He's like, well, I didn't really mean you Specifically, I meant like the collective, the collective you, eventually. Like it would be good, okay, eventually for the collective you, but not you specifically, okay? Okay, God, so what are we supposed to do while we exist under the oppression of the Babylonian Empire? How now shall we live in this context where the thing that we long for is not going to happen in our lifetime? What should we do? In a few verses before the, I know the plans I have for you, God says this. Israel Jeremiah 29 5 through 7. Here's what I want you to do in Babylon I want you to build houses and live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So Israel wants to go home, and God says what? Nope. Set down roots. Build houses. Plant gardens. Plant vineyards. Marry the people in your community. Build families. Become enmeshed in that community. Become a part of it. And seek its good. Seek its health. Seek the blessings and the prosperity of of Babylon, because if this city that you're in, if Babylon prospers, you too will prosper. In its health, you find your health. You don't want to be there, you want to be somewhere else. I'm telling you, set down roots and make this place great, because in its prosperity, in its wellness, you find your own wellness, your own welfare. A rising tide lifts all boats. That's the point, it's not about Alabama. A rising tide lifts all boats. As the community flourishes, you flourish. Even if it's not something you're doing that's directly imp- impacting you individually, if you seek the welfare of the community, it will improve you by proximity, right? Uh, we live in, in Shreveport and in Bossier, and there's definitely lots of warts. There's lots of problems. Uh, you, you get on the list education, addiction, poverty, brokenness, broken family. You get on the list of things that are broken about it. And what if we took this idea that in the welfare of Shreveport and Bossier, we find our welfare? What if our attitude pivoted towards our city to be, we want every aspect of Shreveport and Bossier to flourish. We want every school in both uh, the parishes to do well. We want the students to do well. We want the teachers to do well. We want addiction to be broken. We don't want to run from it or hide from it or escape from it or hunker down. We want to seek the, the blessings and the goodness of everyone in our community because we believe that if our city is healthy, we will be healthy. It's not just about us as individuals, it's about us as a collective community. What if we took that mindset to Shreveport and Bossier that we saw even problems that didn't affect us directly, but they're problems, and say, this is my problem too, because I want to seek the health and the welfare of Shreveport and Bossier. Growing up, I played a computer game, video game, called Command and Conquer. Now, Command and Conquer was what's known as a real-time strategy game. And there's a lot of other games like that. Warcraft, Starcraft, Age of Empires, Civilization. These are all basically the same premise. And the premise is this, get as many resources as you can as quickly as you can for yourself, so that you can build a base, you can build an army, and then you can attack the other base and army and get their resources and keep building and expanding and growing. You can command and conquer real time strategy. And when I think about this game, it kind of just feels like it's the arc of world history. Like this is what we do as empires. We accumulate and we, we hoard resources, we build as quickly as we can so that we can defend what we have and attack others and get what they have. It's just a cycle of history. And what would happen if we actually just flipped the script on that? What if we instead of spending time and money and resources on defending and attacking, we like collaborated with each other and shared knowledge and wealth and information and grew together? Um, that seems really idealistic and naive. And I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's what Minecraft is, right? It's that game. um, But what if we do that? It just feels really naive, but it also seems maybe obvious. I don't know. Seek the welfare of everyone around you, because in their welfare, you find your welfare. Many of us struggle with a scarcity mindset, which is we don't think there's enough to go around. So we grab as much as we can, as quickly as we can, and we hoard, and and we act out of fear. And God's calling us to a mindset of abundance, that when we're generous and we're, we're serving other people, uh, there's gonna be enough to go around and we can all benefit from a mindset of generosity and abundance. Um, up until this Friday, this entire sermon was gonna be filled, was gonna be completely different. Uh, Ashley and I, 12, 15 years ago, I don't know, we spent a year and we lived in, in Palestine, and this sermon was gonna be just story after story. Uh, of how great our neighbors were, they were mostly Muslim and beautiful and awesome and great, um, and maybe some of these same principles and, and sentiments. But I changed the sermon on Friday because honestly, I'm just uh, pissed off, and I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm pretty cynical about what's going on over there and the situation, and I can't really, like, I I can't really go into too much detail about all these stories without getting mad and saying uh, words worse than pissed off. So. It's uh, it's heartbreaking. It's 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 complicated. It's overwhelming, and I think it's difficult to know what to do with situations like this because they they tend to pop up uh, a lot in our history. It's hard to know what to do when something's happening halfway across the world that we couldn't even control if we were there. Um, but we're exposed to the information that's just heart wrenching and, and devastating. It's hard to know how to hold the tension of praying and whatever. Um, and still go about our day-to-day lives. Like, there were a few moments in Halloween when I'm walking around with my kids and they're getting candy, and there's like, you know, there's families across the world that aren't having this experience. It's a weird tension to manage between enjoying my family but also knowing there's heartbreak kind of going on all over the place. And the question is, how do we hold space for that but still function in our local lives? What is our responsibility as global neighbors and what is not, and I don't know. Uh, We can look at things from a macro level, we can look at things from a big picture level, (laughs) and we get overwhelmed and depressed and stuck. And maybe the challenge is that we need to think of things from a micro level, from a smaller level, a personal level, and a local level. What can we actually do that's within our control? Uh, We have friends that are still living in the West Bank, which is separate from Gaza, right? It's over there, it's Bethlehem, that kind of stuff. Uh, Hamas does not exist in the West Bank, but the people that live there, are. it's still getting worse over there for them too. Uh, So we're in communication with them and we're trying to figure out how we can be a support to them even though we're across the world. So that's one thing we can do is just stay in touch with the people that we do know and try to hear their stories and encourage them and support them however we can. Another thing that we can do uh, with that is we can call local government leaders, Ashley's been doing that. Um, But also in Shreveport and Bossier there are both Jewish communities and Muslim communities. And we've seen across the world right now, in response to the conflict there, we've seen a rise in anti-Semitism and uh, Jewish hate. We've seen a rise in uh, anti-Muslim behavior and and hatred towards Arab people. And that uh, is unacceptable. Uh, I wanna use more more language than that, but uh, that's happening all over the world and it could be happening in our community. So we have people in our community that could be affected directly by that kind of behavior. And maybe it's up to us to reach out to them and say, hey, how are you doing? How can we support you in our local community as you're being impacted and affected by something that's happening on a global scale? What does it look like to be great local neighbors, to seek the welfare of our city, to seek the welfare of the world, and and trusting that in that pursuit, we're seeking our own welfare as well. The tension to manage is holding space for what's going on in the world while also doing our best to be good neighbors here and make a difference in our own community. And I just want to read this last line from Jeremiah again. Seek the welfare of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Amen.